Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 5th of December 2022 and this is episode 281. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author and historian Dr John Broom about his latest book, Into Cricket During the Great War. This book is entitled Cricket in the First World War and is published by Pen and Sword. John spoke to me from his home in South Yorkshire. John, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in cricket and the Great War? Well, um, I'm currently in my early 50s and I followed the game of cricket since the mid 70s, as long as I can remember. Um, a boyhood love, spent listening to Test Match Special, watching Test Matches, going to Scarborough Cricket Festival. So I've always loved the game. Um, alongside that, I was brought up with a love of history. It's a subject I studied at university as an undergraduate, then spent 15 years teaching history in secondary schools. Um, then more recently in my life, I've um, privately, or I have to edit that bit, sorry, um, more recently in my life, I've um, undertaken a master's and then a, a doctoral thesis on 20th century warfare and religious aspects of that. So I wrote a few books on that. I then returned to my love of cricket and my love of history to research what I think have been sort of an overlooked topic, and that's the history of cricket in both the First World War and the Second World War. So let's look at Edwardian cricket before the First World War. Who played the game? And how popular was it? And what sort of person would be your average cricket player? Well, cricket was really um, on the march in the later Victorian era and in the early Edwardian era. Um, the previous 20 years before the Great War broke out had seen the emergence of intense interest in international cricket. Um, Test cricket had been on the go since the 1870s, but really uh, an Ashes series in the mid-1890s, which even Queen Victoria was rumoured to have results cabled to her to keep up with the ebbs and flows of the series, had really put cricket on the cultural landscape map. Um, In addition, South Africa had joined the Test-playing nation, so as far as international cricket was concerned, there was intense interest in various Ashes series, and as I say, South Africa had joined the party as well. In Britain, it was really a game played throughout the country. I know many people think in terms of public school ethos and and playing the game, which is part of the subtitle of my book, Um, but it was played in where I am at the minute in Yorkshire, it was played in in leagues and competitively in the Midlands, in Wales. It was played in, in, in sort of a genteel club cricket atmosphere across various parts of the south of England. Um, it was played in, in works teams, various workplaces had set up cricket pitches for the health and welfare and benefit of the workforce. So really, cricket was a game played across all classes. It was a game that had had, um, grown up from the bottom up. So though it was associated latterly with the MCC and and private clubs controlling the narrative of cricket, really up until 20 years before the First World War broke, and it had been a very democratic game played by different people in different milieu. So how did cricket players, cricket clubs and Mm -hmm. um, amateur players react to the outbreak of the First World War? 
It was very messy because obviously nothing like this had been experienced before. There'd be no template as to what cricket should do um, in those circumstances. Um, obviously, the war broke out in late July, early August 1914. That is the middle of the cricket season. Um, in terms of the first class game, the county championships stumbled to a messy conclusion. For example, Surrey, who were leading the championship, could no longer use the Oval because the War Office had requisitioned it, so they had to end up playing their matches at Lords. Um, there's a couple of um, interesting stories of men who are actually in the middle of matches who abandoned their matches. For example, um, a man called Arthur Carr was batting for Nottinghamshire. Um, a telegram reached him on the 4th of August, summoning him to join his regiment. And he's reported to have said, I'll have one more over, threw his wickets away, and off he went to war. Um, another man called Aubrey Sharp um, was playing in a match for Leicestershire against Northamptonshire. Um, his team only needed 84 to win the match. We thought he wouldn't be needed. Left the match early to join his regiment. He's listed as absent on the scorecard. Ironically, his team lost, but they kept his kit bag for him. And when he returned five years later, they had his kit bag waiting for him, ready to, to pick up the game again. So um, in terms of the county game, it stumbled to a messy conclusion. There were, there were debates. Um, WG Grace famously intervened by um, writing to the Sportsman um, magazine, stating that people had no business to be playing cricket when such a grim um, event as the war had started. Um, other people disagreed, saying, well, some people play this game professionally. You can't suddenly remove their livelihoods from them. Other people argued that you needed some sort of recreation and wartime. So really, it was quite messy towards the end of 1914. Some counties cancelled their matches. Northamptonshire had been due to play over at Taunton against Somerset. They cancelled it. Um, so it sort of limped to a, a, a sorry conclusion. Um, towards nine, the end of 1914 and that summer. And did uh, lots of cricket players actually join up? Yes, there was, again, um, many were already attached to regiments, particularly in a county like Hampshire, which, as you can appreciate, is a very military county, both in terms of the Royal Navy and the Army. So many of their players were already attached to regiments on reserve. Um, there was an idea put around that a cricketer's battalion could be formed. In the end, it became a sportsman's battalion. Many cricketers, particularly in Yorkshire, joined the local pals battalions. Um, there was really four schools of thought um, on the place of cricket in, in war, uh, in a society engulfed by total war. The first one was that it's ethically objectionable to countenance any playing of public sport. Many clubs decided to wind up operations, go into mothballs until the war would be ended. Um, Bags were put in their attics or the sheds, wherever they were kept, only to see the light of day once peace was assured. So that was the first school of thought. Cricket should have no place in a wartime society. Second school of thought was that playing friendly matches purely for recreation, particularly matches against local army units, was perfectly acceptable. It would you know, keep men's morale, keep fitness. Um, sometimes these matches could raise funds for local war charities, national war charities like the Red Cross. So... That was a second school of thought for psychological um, and physical health and raising money for good causes. Cricket was acceptable. Third school of thought, and this was a quite nuanced one, was that some of the cricket leagues, competitive leagues that had grown up, particularly, as I say, in Lancashire, Yorkshire, the Midlands and Wales, could continue, but without the warding of cups and trophies. Um, one man's mentor said if, if, if you had a medal saying that you'd won a particular award in 1917, what would that say about you in later life? 
that you'd prioritise the winning of that award against your duty. And finally, and this kind of caused massive controversy, particularly in the Bradford area and wider around Yorkshire, was the Bradford League decided that it would mop up as much available talent as it could. Obviously, the county cricket had ceased for the duration of the war. There's no county championship. So many of these players who were paid professionals were out of work. So the Bradford League got on the front foot, as it were, to use a, a cricketing metaphor, and they signed up various clubs. Um, Idle CC signed up Jack Hobbs, who was reckoned to be the best batsman in the world, certainly the best English batsman at that time. Um, Saltaire Cricket Club signed up Sydney Barnes, reckoned to be the greatest bowler in the world at that time, if not all time. And various other professional players came up as well. The argument there was munitions workers, people working long hours in grimy conditions to support the war effort, needed their Saturday afternoon recreation. If that meant seeing some of the best players in England on display, then that is what it should be. So really, in an unprecedented situation, people formed their own opinions. With one end of the spectrum, no cricket should take place, to let's have it with all bells and whistles on to keep up morale on the home front. And was, so cricket was played sporadically throughout the war uh, and it very, very much, depending on what locality you're in, whether you could go and see a game or indeed participate in a game. That's right. I mean, in comparison to association football, which forms some formal leagues and, um, you know, based on, on regional competitions, cricket, it was very much of a mishmash. So, yes, if you were fortunate enough to live in the Bradford area, you could see some of the best players in England on display. Competitive leagues took place elsewhere around the Yorkshire region. Other leagues that were competitive, particularly in Lancashire, just decided no competitions. There were sporadic little friendly matches going on. Um, but um, Yorkshire County Cricket Club took the decision that they would keep four of their professional players on a paid retainer with a proviso that during the week they did war work and were seen to be putting the backs into the national war effort. But on the weekend, they could then, upon request from clubs around Yorkshire, be hired out to play for, for example, near where I am at the minute, um, a couple of them turned out for Barnsley. Um, then the next week they might be playing up in Otley, just to help keep their profile up and the profile of the game up. So there was no unified uh, monolithic response to the war from cricket. People just, as it were, muddled through and did what they thought was best at the time. Now, tell me about some of the sort of famous cricket players who ended up fighting in the Great War. Well, there were um, 12 players of test status um, who were killed in the war. The majority of actually were from South Africa, surprisingly enough, one Australian and a handful of Englishmen. Uh, one of the most poignant stories involves a man called Major Booth. And Major was not his military rank. It was actually his given name on birth. Um, he was a Yorkshire player, Yorkshire all-rounder. He'd played for England in the 1913-14 tour of South Africa, had a very good tour, um, and was very much the rising star of England cricket. Um, he'd been an early volunteer for the Leeds Pals and had lent his public profile into... Um, recruitment for that um, particular regiment. Um, on the first day of the Battle of Somme, 1st of July 1916, his unit one of the first out of the trenches. Then, really poignantly, a county colleague of his called Abe Waddington, who was in the Bradford Pals, was in one of the following waves, stumbled into a shell hole and found Booth there dying. And Waddington cradled Booth as he drew his last breath. Um, as we know from the Great War, there was no very um, great tidying up of bodies. Post-battle bodies were left out on battlefields and um, his, Boo's body remained um, on the Somme until the following spring. And it was recovered and identified and given a, 
a marked burial. But one of the things that actually helped the um, searchers identify Booth's body was a cigarette case that he'd been uh, given engraved with gratitude and respect for his services on the tour of South Africa of 1913 to 14. And as a really sad ending to Booth's story, his sister Annie kept a light burning in the window of their pudsy cottage in the forlorn hope that he would one day return, maybe it'd been a, mis- a case of mistaken identity. Um, so that's one of the more poignant stories to come out of the war. The, the Yorkshire and England cricketer Major Booth. Um, but yeah, all, all across, um, well-known cricketers were prominent in the war effort. Um, right, okay, so Johnny Douglas, um, who had captained England and was a captain of Essex before the, the war, um, rose to become a lieutenant colonel in his regiment. So really, England players from the most famous um, right through to your average county cricketers down to your club cricketers really put their back into the war effort. As I say, there were a few examples of players who drew a little bit of criticism um, for their decision to um, play in the Bradford League or carry on playing on on the domestic front rather than fully throwing themselves into the war effort. But on the whole, you can say cricket had a pretty good war. And was cricket popular with soldiers deployed overseas? Yes, it was in, in, in all sectors. I mean, famously, Robert Graves mentioned playing a cricket match um, at Vermel. Um, the, the town had changed hands eight times in the early ma- months of the war. Um, it, it was badly damaged. Um, but Graves mentioned in, in Goodbye to All That, a cricket match, officers versus sergeants. The front line, he reckoned, perhaps three quarters of a mile away. I made the top score, 24, he said, uh, using a rafter as a bat, and the ball being a piece of red rag t- uh, tied around string. So obviously there were impromptu knock-ups with any bits of equipment people could get on. There were letters frequently sent to the regional press from um, local club players who were away serving in their battalions, um, asking for consignments of cricket gear to be sent out to the Western Front and indeed the Eastern Front. Um, One famous um, photograph owned by the Australian War Memorial shows Australians playing cricket at Shell Green in Salonica as a diversionary tactic uh, aiming to show the enemy that that's perhaps where troops are being concentrated when in reality they were concentrating further on down the line. so, yeah, there were matches in, uh, ranged from impromptu knockouts to organised contests. Even in um, under the shadow of Mount Sinai in the autumn of 1917, an Australian team defeated an England team in a uh, makeshift ashes, if you were. And that match actually involved Johnny Douglas, who I've just mentioned, the, the England captain. And the Australians um, had in their team a man called Albert Tibby Cotter, who was a fast bowler who was, ended up the only Australian test player to be killed in the war. So, yes, cricket was very popular for troops um, across all the sectors, Western Front, the Mediterranean Front, um, from properly organised games right through to knockabouts with any pieces of um, debris that could get their hands on. And what was the impact of the war on the game of cricket in the interwar period? It actually stopped innovation. In the um, decades and and years leading up to the war, there have been lots of innovations. We've talked about the the emergence of test cricket, the development of a county championship. Really, um, there was a, a move to keep what was called the Edwardian Golden Age of cricket preserved in aspic. Um, uh, there was a yearning for a land of lost content where the, the, the gentlemen amateurs lauded it over the professional players, where MCC very much tightly controlled 
access to the game where public schools and, and Oxford and Cambridge University, that their cricket was venerated above the club cricket, even though it's probably a better standard in the Yorkshire League. So there's very much a, a yearning for a, a land of, of lost content. Um, there was gaping holes in cricket teams, much like um, the male population of Britain in general, one in 11 people who had played county cricket in the years leading up to the war never came back. Um, there were war memorials elected at county clubs and, and more modest clubs around the country. So whilst um, politically and socially in Britain, um, the experience of total war had reshaped the contours of society. You know, by um, Ramsay MacDonald being be able to become prime minister, a man, the illegitimate son of a farm labourer and a housemaid, rose to the most prominent position in the land. Within cricket's hierarchy, it was very much tightly controlled by people coming from the public schools and through Oxbridge. So there was little innovation. Uh, one historian has said, Eric Midwinter, that it, cricket abruptly stopped in its tracks. Um, there were ne- there'd been nearly 1,800 deaths recorded in Wisdom Cricketers' Almanac across the four years of the war. So I think it was psychologically traumatic for the game of cricket. So it's, it really stopped innovation beyond the idea of a two-day county championship in 1919, which was soon ditched. And it, it yearned for pre-war norms and it remained pretty static throughout the interwar period. Um, great sense of loss. Um, one man who played for Warwickshire in England, Tiger Smith, a wicketkeeper, he wrote, cricket was never quite the same after the Great War. The gaiety that the amateur batsman brought to the game was gone forever. I was never as happy a cricketer after the war, but at least I was a one piece, he ended with. Um, so that very much sums up the experience of war. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad we've still got cricket, but it's never quite the same. And where can people learn more about your work and get your book? Uh, I run a Twitter account called at Cricket Wartime, where I tweet on my books on cricket in the First and Second World Wars. Um, my book, Cricket in the First World War, Play Up, Play the Game, with a foreword by Michael Atherton, the former Lancashire and England captain, is available via the Pen and Sword website, by whom it's published. Also various other um Oh, sorry, various. Oh, again. Yeah, my book, um, Cricket in the First World War, Play It, Play the Game, is available via the Pen and Sword website, uh, by whom it's published. It's got um, a foreword by Michael Atherton, the former Lancashire and England captain who now works for Sky Sports and is the Times cricket correspondent. Interestingly, somebody once wrote about him when he was playing, he made batting look like trench warfare. Um, he made it look so such a, a grim struggle. Um, Michael Atherton has written elsewhere about his appreciation of the players of the First World War, so it was um, very much a, an excellent choice there. Um, so yes, I've also got a, a Twitter account at Cricket Wartime where I tweet regularly about the players and personalities of cricket in both world wars. John, thank you very much for your time. All right, thanks, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.